Today's scripture reading comes from John 2, 23-25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of God. It's great to see you all. Great to worship with all of you. And again, if you're, if you're new, it's great to have you. If you're not new, it's also great to have you um, with us today to worship God and to jump into uh, the riches of his word and find out what he has to tell us about himself and about us here in the Bible. I want to start with a question for you to ponder this afternoon. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Here's why I ask that. And maybe if you're new to Christianity and you hear that question, you might say, I've never really given much thought to what belief in Jesus Christ means. Or maybe you might say, how should I know? You're the pastor. You tell me what belief in Jesus Christ means. Maybe you've been around the church for a long time. Perhaps you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've given a lot of thought to this question already. So answers are already forming in your mind. But either way, here's why I ask that question. Because we've been walking through the Gospel of John. It's this biography of Jesus Christ written by one of his closest friends, John the Apostle. And John, the author, has repeatedly made it clear to us why he wrote this biography. He says it in John 20, verse 31. We've looked at this verse over and over again, and we're going to keep coming back to it because it's really the author's purpose statement. He says there, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So why did John write the Gospel of John? He wrote it for this reason. Why does he record all of Jesus' works and deeds and words? Here's why. So that you, so that we, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by believing have life in his name. John tells us that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who came into this world and he came full of grace and truth. And by believing in Jesus, we receive, we get to enjoy that fullness of grace that Jesus brings. John says that when Jesus Christ came into the world, though, Many people did not believe in him. But look at what it says here in John 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So so here's what God offers us through Jesus Christ. New life. Grace and more grace. He offers us welcome into his family as his children and more. So you see what's at stake here. You see why the question of what does belief in Jesus mean is such an important question. Because you and I need to believe in Jesus. And and more than that, we need to know that we're believing. We need to have assurance that we're believing. We can't make assumptions. The stakes are too high. So in order to help us believe in Jesus Christ, 
John, the author of this gospel, does at least two things over and over and over again. And you'll see this pattern as you read through the gospel. The first thing he does is he shows us who Jesus Christ is. He, he does this by, by telling us not only about the miracles that Jesus performed, but also about the other shocking things that Jesus did and said. The powerful things that he taught. And then the other way that John helps us to believe is this. He shows us what belief in Jesus looks like. In other words, John shows us what real faith in Jesus Christ is. So so there's these two aspects to what John is doing here again and again. He shows us who Jesus is. He shows us what belief in Jesus is. And by the way, in this short little passage that we're looking at today, he does both those things. He also does it through the entirety of this gospel. So that as we read along through it, we're we're developing a clearer picture of both those things. We're developing a clearer picture, a clearer understanding of who is Jesus, what is belief in Jesus. And my prayer has been that as we go along and as more and more is revealed to us, we would each, each of us, grow to know Jesus deeply. And believe in him personally. I started by asking, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? We need to answer that question. But what we're looking for is really more than just a definition. Short, pithy definitions can help us, but they only go so far. We need more than that. I used to work in publishing for many years. And um, one of my earliest gigs in that field was working on a dictionary project, which may sound very boring to you. To me, it was, I loved it. My, my job was to research and write definitions for words. At times, it was super interesting. At other times, it was tedious, but it was still rewarding. But it was harder than it sounds. You see, these definitions that make their way into dictionaries, they have to be super short, and, and there's so many limitations to them. You, you, you end up revising and tweaking them for hours and coming back to them again and again. But the fact is that even a finely crafted dictionary definition, it's going to fall short. It's always going to miss some sort of nuance or some shades of meaning of a word. It's never going to quite, it's never going to quite give you everything that you need to know about a word. So what John does in this gospel is so much better than just give us a dictionary definition of belief or a definition of what faith is. Instead, he shows us. He gives us these pictures, right? He he gives us these scenes, these people, and and each one reveals something different about what belief looks like and what it doesn't look like. So, So as we patiently read through the entire book, we get more and more of a detailed, colorful portrait of faith in Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that believing in Jesus involves hearing about him, experiencing him firsthand, and following him. All three. You hear about him, but then you need to experience firsthand really who he is. You begin to follow him. It's partly what belief looks like. Then last week, we saw more about who Christ is and what faith in Christ looks like. As as Tim uh, walked us through this, this messy but remarkable scene 
at the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus reveals more of himself and more of what it looks like to trust in him. Today's passage, it continues to build on all that. In this passage, John shows us more about who Jesus is and about what belief in Jesus is and is not. But this is a tough little passage because it presents us with a side of Jesus that may surprise us. It's an uncomfortable Jesus that we see here. At least we might be uncomfortable and unsettled when we, when we see him here. The Lord Jesus Christ is still in Jerusalem at this point. He's there for the Passover feast. And there's two things that we need to see here that I believe John is showing us. One, Jesus knows everything about everyone. And two, not all believing is true believing. Jesus knows everything about everyone. Not all believing is true believing. Let me read the passage one more time. It says here, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So what we want to see first is this striking truth. Jesus knows everything about everyone. We, we saw kind of a hint of this a couple of weeks back. If you were here, you may remember this. A, a guy by the name of Nathaniel meets Jesus Christ for the first time. And, and Christ immediately makes an observation about Nathaniel's character. He says, behold, this is a man in whom there is no deceit. He makes this deep observation about Nathaniel's character, even though he's never met the man before. How could Jesus know such a thing about a stranger? And then Christ says just a little while later to Nathaniel, he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, a kind of random specific detail, when you were under that fig tree, Nathaniel, I saw you. And this blows Nathaniel away. It's a super odd comment. How did Jesus see Nathaniel? How did he know him before they had ever met? Well, if you have any questions about how Jesus could say something like that, John spells it out for us right here. He tells us Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. When you introduce a friend to a mutual, to another friend, maybe try to tell this person a little bit about this friend that you're introducing. When Jesus meets someone for the first time, he doesn't need anyone to instruct them, bring them up to speed. He already knows. Dwell on that for just a moment. Let it sink in and let it astound you. And, and try to see the glory of Christ in that. No one is outside the bounds of Jesus Christ's knowledge. And, and let's make it personal. No aspect of your life is a mystery to Jesus. There are no secrets before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I, I love listening to experts speak about the field that they are experts in and they're passionate about. No matter what the field is, I find that it can be interesting. It's fascinating to, to, to hear what someone has learned about a field that they really care about and they've really immersed themselves in. It's impressive. It's one of the reasons I like listening to TED Talks and listening to these people speak about this particular field that they've done all this research in, they've thought about for a long time. It's so impressive. And more, more than just knowledge, I'm, I'm especially impressed by people who possess deep insight into others. This sort of thing, it, it, it enthralls me. People who have the ability to, to understand how the human heart works and how the mind works, who, who are able to discern what, what motivates us and what lies behind our, our words and our actions. Well, if you have ever been impressed by someone's vast, deep knowledge, or if you've ever been impressed by someone's insight and, and wisdom, then let the knowledge of Jesus astound you even more. His insight about you and everyone else who has ever lived, it should floor us. He's the only person who knows you fully. I wonder if that's comforting to you or if it's scary to you, or maybe both. Does it feel good to know Jesus knows everything about me, or is it a little unsettling? It could be unsettling, no? To to think that nothing is hidden from him? Are, Are there secrets that you are keeping from those who know you? Are there things that that your family and friends would be shocked by or disappointed by if you were to slip up and reveal, if they ever discover? If so, this, I believe, is an invitation to confess those things, to confess them to Jesus and to confess them to whoever else you need to confess them to. to, to bring those things out into the light Jesus already knows. So confessing these things, it's not for his sake, it's for your sake. (laughs) Bringing them out into the light is the first step towards being rescued from, saved from, healed from, whatever it is that you're harboring. It's maybe destructive, dark. The same guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote elsewhere, These words, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are in a season, I believe as a nation, as a society, a season of things being brought into the light. We see this happening in in Hollywood. We see this happening in other industries as well. We see this happening within Christ's church around this country. Long hidden and unspoken evils are being dragged out into the light to be reckoned with. It it, it reminds me of what Tim preached on last week, that that cleansing of the temple that Jesus did. It's almost as if Jesus perhaps even now is cleansing out the church in some remarkable ways. 
by bringing things that some might believe were hidden and even hidden from Christ's eyes out into the open to be dealt with, hopefully to be repented of. Do you ever feel misunderstood? Do you ever feel like your, your, your parents, for instance, coworkers, classmates, maybe even your closest friends, you feel like they really don't get you? There's certain aspects of who you are and what you need that they just don't get it. And you've tried to explain it or you're, you've tried to be, they just don't see it. Jesus does. Let, let that comfort you. But beyond just being awed by the fact that Jesus knows everything about everyone, it's meant to give us a deep sense of comfort. He understands you in ways that no one else can. Sometimes we struggle to know ourselves, don't we? We struggle to understand why we do what we do and why we say the things we say. Why do those words come out of my mouth so easily? And and yet the things that I do want to say and do, they're so hard and they don't happen. There's comfort for us here. Jesus knows. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. It's why I love this passage in Psalm 139 that we read at the very beginning of our worship gathering. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. See, Jesus is able to help you understand yourself. He's able to see where sin resides in you, but also where fears and anxiety reside. Your tendencies, whatever they might be. Jesus Christ's spirit takes his word and and he brings clarity to what's going on in our hearts. His word pierces and and performs surgery on us to help us see the inner workings of our minds. I've recently gotten um, much more interested in um, personality models and personality tests. I don't know if you guys have any experience with these things, like like a Briggs-Myers test, or Myers-Briggs, I should say, or the um, Enneagram model, which is particularly interesting, amazing. I find that these, these, um, these models for, for personality types, um, they, they can help us understand ourselves better. They can help us understand um, our tendencies and our personalities and those of others as well. And I find that the more I study these things, the more I get to understand, oh, I, especially when I look at what these models tell us under the authority of Scripture and weigh them against what Scripture is telling me, I find that they bring a lot of clarity and help. But the fact is that what Jesus knows about us goes far, far beyond what any personality test or personality assessment could ever reveal to us. It's just a, it's just a glimpse. You start studying like the Enneagram, for instance. If, that, if you don't know what that means, just don't worry about it. If you do know what the Enneagram is and you're interested in talking about it, I'd love to talk to you about it because I'm, I'm finding it very fascinating. But you, you start to learn about this and you say, oh, there are aspects of my personality that I never really realized before. It's like whole new like, like rooms of your heart are being opened up. 
But then when you step back and you think, what Jesus knows about me makes this look minuscule. This is nothing compared to the vast, exhaustive knowledge that Jesus has of you now. And perhaps what's most comforting truth of all is this. He knows you fully, and he is willing to love you fully. Pastor Timothy Keller has said these words that are pretty well known. I'll read them to you. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Right? When someone loves you but they don't really know you that well, it feels good, but it's a little superficial because you wonder if this person really knew me, would they really like me as much as they do? But then he says, to be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. That someone would know us so well that they'd say, I can no longer love you. I don't even like you. But then he goes on, to be fully known and truly loved at the same time, that's what we need more than anything. That's what we long for more than anything. And this is what Jesus Christ offers to us. I wonder if the secrets that you harbor from others, deep, dark secrets, maybe they're not sins that you've committed. Maybe they're sins that were committed against you. Abuses that you have endured. And maybe you're ashamed of them. And and maybe you're afraid of what others will think if they ever find out. Or maybe you wonder if what people would ever even believe you if you told them what's been done to you and what's happened to you. Maybe you've tried to share in the past and you didn't meet with sympathy. You met with rejection. You met with doubt and disbelief. Listen, Christ knows and he does not turn away from any of that. He hates what was done to you. He's willing to receive you and heal you. He knows everything about everyone. Maybe that frightens you again. And in a sense, it ought to, to think that we are completely naked and open before a holy God. But to think that even the worst things that you've ever done or the worst things that have ever been done to you, they aren't enough to make him turn his back in disgust. He knows you fully, yet he is willing to love you fully. Believe in him and take him at his word when he says that. Because he himself, Jesus Christ, says in John 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Now, what's difficult about this passage we're looking at today is that the same Jesus who says, whoever comes to me, I'll never turn you away, It looks like he's kind of contradicting himself here because people are believing in him and he's saying, I'm not going to entrust myself to you. So this leads us to our second, our last point. Not all believing is true believing. Look at the passage one more time. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
This word there, it says he, he did not entrust himself to them. It means he was unwilling to commit himself to them. I, I was just at a wedding yesterday. Two people committed themselves to one another. As they spoke these beautiful vows before God and, and before a, a building full of witnesses, what they were doing was entrusting themselves to one another in the covenant of marriage. Jesus here is refusing to enter into covenant with these particular people. He's saying, I will not commit myself to you. Why? It becomes clear the closer we look. In verse 23, it says, people, these people believed in him. And then verse 24, it says, he did not entrust himself to them. But the fact is that that word for believed... And that word for entrusted, you see them in verse 23 and 24? They're the same word. Just two different forms of the same word. So you could actually translate it this way. The people trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Or, or this way, maybe. The people believed in his name, but he did not believe in them. Why did he not believe in them? The fact is that you and I can't always know whether someone's belief is genuine and sincere, but Jesus can. He knows. His knowledge of people is so profound, and, and that explains why, you see, Jesus deal with people differently. There's no cookie-cutter way for the way that Jesus interacts with the people who approach him. He deals with each one in a specific way perfectly wise way. So the way he talks to, say for instance, in the next chapter we're going to look at next week, in, uh, uh, in chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus in a way that's very different from the way that he talks to that woman that he meets by the well, the Samaritan woman. And, and that's very different from the way that he talks to Philip and Nathaniel, those guys who show up in chapter 2. What Jesus observes in this particular group of people is not genuine. And he sees that. That was my baby once again. She just fell off the pew for all her. She seems to be fine, but she just rolled off the pew. Grandpa's got her. Big brother's got her. What he observes in these people is, is fake. So he withholds himself from them. Now, now look, now here's something we really need to see here. It's not that Jesus looks at them and says, your faith is too weak. Their problem was not that their faith was weak. Jesus does not reject weak faith. The problem was that their faith was false. Jesus commends weak faith. He loves it. You know what Jesus loves to do? He loves to see people with weak faith, and he nurtures that faith. He makes it stronger. In Mark 9, 24, there's a guy who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. The guy was honest. He knew that I'm a, I'm a mixture of belief and unbelief at the same time, but there's a sincerity, this openness, this humility. And so when we come to Jesus with that same attitude, it says, I believe, Jesus, but I'm struggling to believe, and half of me doesn't even really believe right now. I don't know what's going on. Help me. 
Jesus meets that with compassion. It says in Matthew 12 that Jesus, listen, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. When the the flame of someone's belief in him is just barely even lit, it's just a smoldering wick. Jesus doesn't come and blow it out. He comes and he nurtures it and he makes it stronger. But there is a kind of belief that Jesus does not welcome, and that's false belief. What made the belief of these people false? Let's take a moment to think about this and consider the kind of false belief that Jesus runs into here and he runs into elsewhere in the gospel too. For one thing, Jesus sometimes runs into faith that is superficial. It's superficial belief. And and in this case, it happens to be a kind of belief that's based solely, now notice the word solely and only, on miracles. Now, Now, signs, as John calls them, or miracles, are nothing to be, they're not to be despised. They are displays of God's might. They're displays of his glory. They're to be desired. John records them for that very reason, so that we might see them and believe. But the signs that Jesus performs can't be the only basis of our faith in him. They can't. Because what about what what happens when the signs stop coming the way we want them to, or the way we expect them to? Or what happens when the the, the signs, they, they cease to impress us? They cease to convince us. If we go back to the scene that Tim preached on last week in the temple, what did those people who interacted with Jesus say? They said, show us more signs, Jesus. We need to see more. If we're really going to believe in you, we need more. Show us more. They're looking for a Messiah who will do tricks on demand. They're looking for a Savior who will repeatedly stun them until they're finally satisfied. And one author says this, he says, that sort of God that they're looking for is the sort of God who does powerful stunts to maintain our allegiance. But Jesus says that kind of allegiance is not worth having. He rejects it. He sees their belief as, un- as, as superficial. But not only that, he sees their belief as self-serving. It, it's a kind of opportunistic belief. In John 6, later on in this gospel, Jesus rebukes a crowd. And and he, he rebukes them not just because they're chasing more and more signs, and that is what they're chasing, but because they just want, basically they want him to give them food. Food is good. Food is important. But that's all they're looking for from him. They just wanted physical, material stuff from him. They want to take what Jesus has to offer They see it as useful. And so they see belief in Jesus as as convenient. It'll get them what they want in that moment. Jesus calls them out for that. He says, I have much more to offer you than just what you're looking for. Isn't that kind of opportunistic, convenient 
belief typical in our society? We, we see, for instance, I'll give you an example. We see politicians use Jesus for stuff all the time when it's convenient to, to, to appease a political base or to build a political base, throw in some words there about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And all kinds of people say, oh, I'll get behind that. And get votes by using the name of Jesus. It's an opportunistic kind of faith. It's false. Jesus hates it. And the fact is that God is not mocked. <laughs> He's not mocked. He does not fall for that sort of thing the way voters do. He despises it. And he will judge it. But of course, it's not just politicians who do that sort of thing. We ourselves can take an opportunistic approach to Christ. We, we pick and choose what we want from him. We believe certain things about him when it's convenient, but we ignore other things that he says when it's inconvenient. We're all in the danger of doing this. Think about it again, just at the political level. It's, it's convenient for us at times to ignore or at least downplay the implications of what Jesus says about a particular thing, but then get very, very focused on what he says about something else. So, for instance, we can conveniently ignore what the Lord says about protecting life, born and unborn. We can downplay what he says about race and racism. We can downplay or ignore what Jesus says about sexuality. Just, just, it's not that we, we, we would outright say we don't believe it. We just don't give it much airtime. We'd rather focus on the other things that are more convenient and easier for us to focus on. We, we might conveniently ignore what Jesus has to say about welcoming the outsider, the stranger. And depending on how you lean politically, you've probably grown adept at ignoring and downplaying some of those things and highlighting others of them. It's a problem for all of us. Jesus sees it for what it is. He calls us out of that. The belief that, the false belief that Jesus ran into a lot in the Gospels is superficial belief. It's self-serving belief. But it's also temporary belief. He ran into lots of that. There, there were people who he saw, who, who saw him, who, who loved the signs that he was doing, who loved some of the things he was saying. But when he contradicted them or he challenged them, they walked away. It says in John 6, 66, Jesus had been teaching and many people had believed in him and followed him. But here in John 6, at the end of that chapter, he says some very difficult things. And in verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There was a temporary following, a temporary faith. So if that's what fake faith looks like, at least some of what it looks like, what does true faith look like? 
What is the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for that he doesn't see in the hearts of these people in Jerusalem on that Passover? For one, true faith sees Jesus as the rescuer that you desperately need. True faith sees Jesus as the rescuer that you and I desperately need. You see, we don't just need a miracle worker. We need miracles in our life. Many of us are praying for them even now. But what we need goes even beyond that. We need a savior. We need someone to rescue us from sin and shame. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is, this is worthy to be trusted. You can trust this. You can fully accept this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He meets our deepest need. He died in the place of and for sinners to rescue us from the consequences of our own evil words, deeds, thoughts, you name it. Real belief in Jesus looks like this. It looks like someone who's broken and humbled coming to him for what they need most. True faith in Jesus doesn't look like someone who's already full, already has everything they need, going to Jesus for a little extra something more. True faith in Jesus sees him as the rescuer we desperately need. And lastly, true faith sees Jesus as the Lord that you need to follow. The Lord and King you need to follow. There's a scene in Mark 8 where Jesus is speaking to a crowd and, uh, and, and the crowd had his disciples in there and some other people that were not his disciples. And he says to this crowd, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You hear that? Deny themselves. It requires a, a saying no to self and yes to Christ. It means saying, I will no longer be Lord and King over my own life. Now you are Lord. I don't get to pick and choose between what I want to believe and don't believe about what you tell me. I don't get to pick and choose between your commands and your instructions. Instead, I die to myself. My wisdom, it dies. And what you say now rules. I mentioned this passage back in John chapter 6, verse 66, where Jesus says, where we, we find out that some people that were following Jesus, when he had started teaching some very difficult things, they decided to walk away. They said, no, we don't want any part of this anymore. Let me read to you a little bit more of that scene. John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus sees these at least outwardly, they look like promising disciples walk away. So what does Jesus do? He turns to the 12, his 12 closest disciples, and look at what he asks them. He says, do you want to go away as well? 
And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed. And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's no turning back from that. You see what true belief looks like? It says, even even if I wanted to, I got nowhere else to go. You're the only one who has truth. You're the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I've believed that. I've come to know it. I can't now deny it. I can't pretend that I don't know that you are the Holy One of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 20th century Lutheran pastor. He lived in the first half of the 20th century. He observed that in his society, we might observe the same thing in ours, that there had, there was, there was, it was very common and popular for people to, quote unquote, believe in Jesus. But their belief, he observed, was not the real thing. He said that people had fallen in love with what they didn't realize, but was really a, a view of grace that was cheap. He called it a cheap grace. He says, people have started to believe that somehow if I believe in Jesus in some way, I can take what he has to offer, and yet it places no demands on my life. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer pushed hard against that. He says, no, grace, it's a free gift, but grace also calls you to follow. It calls you to turn away from sin. And then he says this, quote, Above all, this grace is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Does this describe you? Do you see Jesus as the rescuer you desperately need and the Lord that you need to follow? Have you received him on those terms? Or have you cheapened him and the grace that he offers you? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the last thing that I want to do is undermine your sense of assurance. The last thing I want to do is make you question whether you're really a follower of Christ when you really are. I I don't want to sow seeds of doubt in your mind. No, that's, that's awful. But I do believe that Jesus, at places in his word, he confronts us and he challenges us. He, he, He calls us to take inventory. And I think this is one such occasion. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus. You have trusted in him. But still, as we talked about some of those elements of of false faith, maybe you see some of that mixed in with the authentic faith in your heart. You see some of those elements of inauthentic, superficial, self-serving, temporary belief in your own heart. I know I do. I see it in there. As I've prayed to God to reveal what's in my heart, I can't miss it. I believe that part of the reason that God reveals that to us is because he wants to refine our faith. If you are already believing, he wants to purify that faith. 
to weed out those impurities. Fact is that we can't see faith in the hearts of others often. We can't even really see it perfectly in ourselves. But the Lord, the Lord sees as man does not see. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So let's ask him to show us. Whatever he reveals to us, let's confess it to him and let's humbly, even now, even now, let's believe in Jesus on his terms and his terms alone. Let's pray. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you because we know that you have only the best intentions for us. Show us what's going on in our hearts. Give us faith. Give us faith. And if there's already faith there, Lord, would you refine it? Would you purify it? Would you fan the flames of it so it would burn hotter? Keep us, Lord. Don't let us walk away. Don't let us underestimate and cheapen your love and commitment to us. We ask all of that in Christ's name. Amen.